0: Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Kurenkov. I finished my PhD at Stanford earlier this year, and I now work at a
1: Gen AI startup. And back on the show is, oh yeah, uh, hey guys, Jeremy here. So thank you for your patience. I have been away for like the last three weeks on work stuff, uh, two kind of big trips. So my time zones are all upside down, and it's just super great to be back. Uh, I really miss this. I miss the conversations, I miss keeping up with the news, I miss this chat. And uh, what a week to come back for. I mean, this is just like drama in Silicon Valley, like uh, crazy stuff at OpenAI, stuff at Cruise. It feels like we're we're covering a soap opera.
0: I know. Uh, It's funny seeing all these tech forums, people commenting, oh, I'm just going to cancel Netflix. This is better than anything (laughs) on there. And yeah, wow. Uh, If you haven't listened to our last episode, you may want to start there to get the latest on the developments from last week because that's what we're going to be expanding on. And you know what? Let's just jump straight in. So in applications and business, the number one story of the year uh, is this OpenAI drama, and the latest development is that Sam Altman has been reinstated as OpenAI's CEO. This just came out late last night, Tuesday, at like 10 p.m. PST. There was a post on Twitter from OpenAI, saying that there is an agreement in principle for Sam to return to OpenAI as CEO with a new uh, initial board of uh, Brad, Taylor, Brad Taylor as the chair, Larry Summers, and Adam D'Angelo. So the board that voted Sam Altman out is mostly out, except for Adam D'Angelo, who will remain on it. Um, yeah, and uh, it seems like maybe this is the end of the OpenAI drama. And boy, a lot has happened since we recorded our episode Saturday morning up until now. A lot of like, oh, they're negotiating, and maybe he'll return. But no, the negotiation break down. So Sam Altman is going to Microsoft, and then everyone at
1: OpenAI might go to Microsoft, and then this happens. So what a what a crazy story. Yeah, very much so. I think one of the big things that's also changes, changed in the background is we've gotten a bit of a better sense, not a perfect sense, but a bit of a better sense for why this happened in the first place. And so at, at the risk of repeating some of what might have been covered last episode, I think now that we have that information, it might make a little more sense to, to kind of go over that story. Um, yeah, you have initially the, so first of all, OpenAI has two components. And this is something that um, sometimes get, gets lost in the storytelling here. OpenAI has the for-profit company. And then they have a nonprofit, the parent company. The idea, the way this is supposed to work, is one day OpenAI will make AGI. And that will be a giant money printing machine because it can automate all of human intelligence and, and work. At that stage, the theory is it's inappropriate for this one company to, like, reap the benefits of all of this, all this stuff. It should be shared with humanity. And so they have what they call a capped for-profit structure. Investors like Microsoft, who put in money, are limited to a 100x return on their initial investment once they reach, you know, once they build AGI and presumably make zillions of dollars. And everything beyond that goes to the nonprofit parent entity for redistribution. Basically, this is a kind of like redistribution of wealth scheme through the nonprofit. Now, the board of the nonprofit is the board that fired Sam Altman. And crucially, that board does not have a fiduciary obligation to the for-profit shareholders in the OpenAI entity. In other words, the board is actually responsible for the well-being of the general public, not of the for-profit entity. And this is where we start to get into the the actual motivation, it seems now, for for, uh, Sam Altman's firing. It seems that the board decided that for whatever reason, and we're getting a little bit of a hint for what the reasons might be now. For whatever reason, Sam A might not have been reliable, might not not have been safety oriented enough. We know that there've been kind of disagreements among the board, uh, as between Sam Altman and, and Greg Brockman, his like tight buddy and the former CTO, now president of OpenAI, I guess now no longer, um, and the other three board members who were much more kind of, shall we say, kind of safety hawks on the board. And it seems like from what we've heard. The, the disagreement came to a head over a particular document that was written by Helen Toner, who's one of these sort of safety-minded board members. Uh, she comes from Open Philanthropy, which is a whole other kind of kettle of fish. She holds the Open Philanthropy board seat at OpenAI, and she wrote this document, basically saying, "Hey, um, it's like on page twenty-nine of this document, she makes the case that like maybe OpenAI." Um, hasn't, its actions haven't been matching its speech when it comes to safety and maybe Anthropic like has been doing a better job action wise of backing up their safety talk. And Sam Altman seems to have an issue with this. And then there's been this kind of disagreement kerfuffle that's kind of boiled over from there. That seems right now, as far as I can tell, that is kind of the proximal cause of this whole brouhaha.
0: That's right. Yeah. So let's maybe cover the story step by step, just so if you are not aware of all the details, I think it's interesting to note. So as you said, there is this strange kind of nonprofit for-profit structure that was instituted, I think, in 2019. Uh, So Sam Altman came in as CEO in March of 2019, just as uh, OpenAI was finishing up GPT-2 and making this movement towards the large language model space uh, as its main focus away from more varied kind of ai directions and for a while Uh, you know, 2019, 2020, OpenAI was primarily still a research kind of company, as it has been since it was started in 2015, when it was started, with the intention of, you know, really researching general AI. And kind of, as you said, the goal from the outset was to build AGI for the benefit of humanity. And then since then, you know, in 2020, there was GPT-3, a big watershed moment for AI, where they built pretty much a precursor to ChatGPT. Already at that point, it became very apparent that this is a super powerful technology. Then, in 2021, 2022, they started moving towards commercializations. They started offering these APIs, where you know commercial companies could pay to use GPT free and uh, some other technologies. And then, of course, last year I was ChatGPT. And things went crazy since then. And we saw you know, earlier in November with OpenAI Dev Day, they are very much pushing on the commercial side. So as you said, it seems like from what reports are saying that there has been a growing tension between the nonprofit uh, board of directors and Sam Altman in this push and pull between moving fast and growing commercializing and pushing out uh, services versus moving slower, not expanding AI capabilities quite as fast, and generally being more focused on the safety and AGI mission over the more, I don't know, profit-oriented uh, commercial business uh,
1: way of thinking about it. And I, I think that that's a really great nutshell. I think it's also like There's a complexifier here, which is the profit-driven part of the company, Um, according to Sam Altman, I think this is what he would argue, that is part of the AGI mission. And, And the reason is that scaling, buying all the processors, all the processing power that they need to build the next generation of systems towards AGI just costs so much money. And as a result, they have no choice but to commercialize, but to pump these things out there. And at the same time, Sam Altman has this thesis that like the best way to ensure safety is to show the world what these systems are currently capable of, because that will hopefully start useful policy discussions. We saw how ChatGPT actually did that. I mean, it's a big part of the reason why a lot of folks are listening right now. Um, so that did arguably move the policy conversation forward. The question ultimately, so like everybody in the story, and, and that's a mind-blowing thing, everybody in this whole story basically agrees that AI poses an extinction-level risk to humanity. So when we talk about the safety-minded folks and and the sort of maybe more product-minded folks, it, it is the case that like these camps by and large agree that like extinction is on the table here. The question is what should we actually do about it? And the faction of sort of board members that ousted Sam um, seem to have been. Uh, And there's a lot of people like this in the community more broadly, but they're worried about, hey, you know what? As you productize these systems, you escalate the racing dynamics. And when you do that, you force Google to move faster. You force um, Anthropic to move faster. You force everybody to kind of throw safety by the wayside. And uh, you know this has also been a long time coming. To your point, like this contention between the board members, we covered I think a, maybe a couple of weeks ago. You know, OpenAI changed their their public facing values that they used to recruit people. Right, previously they had values like being thoughtful and impact driven. Um, now everything is about being intense and scrappy, focused on AGI, scale, scale, scale. You can really kind of feel that shift. And I, I mean, I wonder if to some extent this played into the thinking in, in the back end. Look, we're about to start sucking people in preferentially for the accelerationist tendencies uh, based on you know our recruiting material. And the whole org is really kind of being restructured in that direction. Maybe the nonprofit board felt that things were starting to get out of hand and, and there was no other way to rein the situation in.
0: And yeah, this story is there's so much to it just to cover everything that happened since friday would require a bit of effort but let me try and summarize the kind of juicy details just so people know because it it's it's such a like if you're in the tech world if you're in the ai world then you everyone you know probably has been just following this like crazy uh so we first got word that uh sam altman was fired uh on friday there was this meeting where Ilya Sutskever, the uh, co founder, alongside with Greg Brockman and many others at OpenAI, informed Sam Altman that he was fired. That news came out. Then Greg Brockman stepped down afterward. And then several senior researchers also left. So that was all happening on Friday. Then you know, everyone lost their mind because this was crazy and everyone started speculating what happened. Over the weekend, there were negotiations to reinstate Sam Altman that uh, supposedly, or the news reporting was that they broke down late Sunday. And so at that point, a new interim CEO, so on Friday, there was a replacement interim CEO who used to be OpenAI CTO. On Sunday, when the negotiations broke down, there was a second interim CEO appointed, uh, who was uh, an outsider. He was the CEO of Twitch. And then it came out that Sam Altman had somehow agreed to join Microsoft. Uh, uh, Sam Altman and I think Greg Bunkman also agreed. On Monday, this kept getting crazier with news that there was an internal uh, letter with uh, many, almost all employees of OpenAI is signing this petition to reinstate Sam Altman. By the end, it was something like 720 out of 770 employees at OpenAI said, you know, we want you to reinstate Sam Altman or we leave because Microsoft will just hire us with the same amount of money. And then you know, obviously, all the tech companies were starting to tell all of the OpenAI employees, you know, come come, get employed by us, uh, we'll uh, have you on. So at that point, 95% of the employees at OpenAI uh, seemed to be in open revolt. The board of directors was being silent. Uh, and there was this new CEO who has stated previously that it was pro slowing down AI development very much on this more AI safety side. So by Tuesday, it really started to feel like OpenAI might be imploding. Like, if Sam Altman didn't return, this might be the end of OpenAI. And then, late uh, yesterday, this happened. And just one more detail uh, for for context, the uh, paper or the uh, Policy brief or analysis, uh, or oh, sorry, this is an issue brief from CSET that pot- potentially set off some of this uh, tension. It is called decoding intentions, artificial intelligence and costly signals. It's basically uh, talking about uh, how to uh, how can policymakers understand. The intentions of uh, organizations in AI, and it does talk a lot about OpenAI. There are 37 occurrences of OpenAI in it. Uh, if you actually read it, it's not super critical. I w- I will say it. Uh, page 29
1: based... is where the juicy stuff is. If you're curious. yeah,
0: page 29 exactly. So I'll just read a little bit for context. Yeah, uh, so it is talking uh, a lot about some of these efforts to uh, signal the intentions of OpenAI. Then, towards the end, there's uh, these uh, uh, excerpts. While the system card itself has been well received among researchers interested in understanding GP4's risk profile, it appears it has to have been less successful as a broader signal of OpenAI's commitment to safety. Uh, OpenAI has also drawn criticism from many other safety and ethics uh, issues related to the launches of ChatGPT and GPT-4, including regarding copyright issues, labor conditions, and and so on and so on. So it is a pretty explicit criticism. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is like an issue brief. Uh, you, you could easily argue that it's not a, as huge a deal as maybe Sam Altman seemed to make it out, where there was uh, seemingly contention to make toner
1: stepped down from a board over this. So some uh, peculiarities to highlight here too. Uh, some people have kind of criticized the board for not necessarily having executed on this move as smoothly or or well as they may have. It's a little unclear whether that's actually the case right now, uh, just because we we lack so much data from the outside. Um, but one of the criticisms is focused around this idea that the board came out and said like we've lost confidence in Sam Altman. And his ability to run the company, and also calling out explicitly that he had not been quotes consistently candid in his communications with the board. This isn't the kind of thing that you would normally think a board would say unless they were willing to pretty immediately share the reasoning behind uh, that that accusation or, or that claim, at least. Um, no, not least because it could be you know professionally incredibly damaging to you know a CEO who you're gonna uh, who you're gonna Fire in this way. And so, you know, OpenAI employees flagged this and said, like, look, we haven't even really been given a reason for this firing. Um, and uh, some have argued that that fallout, you know, is part of what triggered the signing of this open letter that they've all signed to kind of try to get Sam to come back and push back on the board. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting question as to, like, what actually went on behind the scenes? If we had the information, what would we think of this board decision? The argument certainly is being made that this was a kind of a botched firing. Um, again, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, no matter where you fall on Sam Altman being sort of safety conscious enough, uh, it, it seems like a, a real mess right now. And uh, certainly Sam Altman's safety consciousness is at the center of this, right? The kind of more safety-minded board members uh, seem to be kind of leading the way on, on pushing him out here uh, due to concerns over safety, due to concerns that he's too accelerationist here.
0: Again, we don't know the full details, to be clear. There might have been something that the board knows that they haven't shared, although nobody has heard anything. In particular, there have been tidbits of maybe Sam Altman assigned two employees to work on the same thing or something like that, but nothing particularly, I don't know, spicy. One thing also worth noting that I forgot to mention about the letter is that Ilya Suskover who was also on the board of the directors and joined Helen Toner and Tasha McCauley in uh, basically pushing out Sam Altman. By Sunday or Monday, uh, Ilya Suskever had posted on Twitter that he regretted his actions deeply and signed onto this letter saying, bring back Sam Altman, having voted to kick out Sam Altman, uh, which is yet another like crazy bit of drama here. So now Basically, almost the entire set of people who kicked out Sam Altman are out of a board. Uh, Tasha McCauley, Helen Toner, Ilya Satsky are not on the board now. But Adam uh, uh, D'Angelo, who seemed to be leading these negotiations, is still on it. So that at least shows some, you know, concession in terms of you know we're <laughs> not gonna have it be the Mr. Altman board, and also. Greg Bochman and uh, Altman are not on the board as part of this uh, negotiated agreement. So I think it's maybe we should be careful about making kind of broad assertions about safety and open eyes direction after this, just because of how dramatic and, and kind of messy this all has been. In the letter, they state that the way this was handled was crazy, and it, uh, it might be that. Had it been more of an explicit uh, argument uh, or discussion around safety and speed, uh, this would have gone differently, but boy, you know, what an event and um, maybe, maybe this is it, but crazy story. This will be definitely covered in
1: a book of some sort eventually. No doubt. And I mean, and, and then, the, you know, there's a whole Microsoft side of the story too, but at a certain point we got to cut it short. This is, yeah, this is one for the ages. It, some people are highlighting is like the um, a historically bad firing uh, in Silicon Valley history compared to Steve Jobs being let go and then rehired later. You know that sort of thing. Uh, really, really unclear, as you said, like what the actual long term implications could be. But uh, I guess we just got to wait and see and and see how people vote.
0: Well, we could keep going and discussing this for a while, but we should probably move on to the next news story, which is. Cruise co-founder and CEO Kyle Vogt resigns, and soon thereafter, uh, GM Cruise co-founder, senior exec Dan Ken quits day after CEO exit. So again, uh, to get some of the background, you might want to listen to our most recent uh, episode before this one. In a nutshell, Cruz has been going through a lot of troubles as we've been covering ever since uh, there was an incident in San Francisco that uh, led to some seemingly bad nego- uh, communications with the DMV. And now Cruz is not able to test its self driving cars and, in fact, has halted all testing in the US. And now, uh, I guess, as part of a follow out, the original CEO of Cruz has. Been there for you know since the beginning and around 2015 has resigned uh, along with his uh, co-founder. So uh, yeah, Cruise is still very much an ongoing story, and and I think uh, maybe less discussed, but to some extent maybe uh, as dramatic and potentially very
1: significant for the self-driving space. Yeah, and it's still no word on when exactly their CEO will be reinstated. Um, but presumably that's <laughs> going to come. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's also, you know, just highlights one of these, I think that the difference between Cruise and OpenAI, which is you know, with OpenAI, you have a company that's developing stuff that's like less, it's less immediately clear how it hurts people um, in the short term. And with Cruz, it's like an accident leads to a death, and so you have this very decisive, like you know, kind of moment for criticism to come. So you know, I don't don't know how much of a factor that is here, but they're they're definitely qualitatively different businesses from through that lens. Um, Yeah, and and it seems like they now you know the DMV. Um, has has created a situation where you know they, they don't have commercial permits to operate in San Francisco anymore, and they're pausing their driver driverless fleets in other states. So a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, friction being introduced for Cruise. Bit of a shakeup. Apparently, morale has been low too. Not too surprising given <laughs> given this story. So we'll we'll see where that goes.
0: And. It's also worth noting there was an article coming out of the Wall Street Journal titled GM's Self Driving Car Units Kids, of course, uh, Cruises, majority owned by GM. And this is a pretty good summary of some of the background leading up to now. So, although the inciting incident of all of this was this crash that happened in San Francisco and the communications. Afterward, as highlighted in this article, it could be argued that Cruise has been moving too fast since last year when they started to start commercializing and putting out the service of like Uber, but with self driving cars. Yeah, going back to last year, there were cases where there was actually an anonymous uh, tip sent from the company by supposedly an employee who said that. The tech wasn't ready, it was having some uh, pretty bad issues with detecting uh, things that it collided with. And uh, yeah, this was sent to a California regulator in May of 2022. And just to say here is my subjective opinion from experiencing this and speaking with others at the company is that employees generally do not believe we are ready to launch to the public. But there's fear of admitting this because of expectations from leadership and investors, uh, according to Vladimir. So if you're curious, uh, it seems like, again, there is some kind of lead up to this point, although uh, in this case, it's,
1: it's much clearer what happened. And now onto our lightning round. And we start with leaked email shows Amazon is cutting, quote, several hundred jobs across Alexa business, including the newly launched artificial general intelligence team. So that's um, maybe a a kind of an interesting note if you're tracking the frontier of the space and who has explicit AGI teams. Amazon had been one. Um, What they're doing is basically rebalancing their corporate resources to focus more on generative AI. And this is actually a Pretty kind of classical uh, Amazon move. You know, the focus culturally of the company is on creating value for like real use cases, tangible use cases today. They have sort of less of a moonshot uh, vibe to them than say OpenAI, than Microsoft, than Google. Institutionally, you know, this is kind of Andy Jassy and Jeff Bezos's influence being felt here. Like really, really focus on those customer use cases. One of the things that may do is actually prevent them, potentially, from seeing around corners and, and betting big on things like uh, like AGI itself. Uh, they were sort of late to the party among the bigger labs or bigger uh, superscalers with an, a- an explicit AGI effort. Um, and now they're seeing those resources redistributed within the company to focus on more concrete things. They have seen a lot of cuts lately, 27,000 jobs since late last year. Um, and uh, anyway, so you know, you, you can you can sort of see like the, the shifting of priorities and ultimately their kind of belief, institutional belief, in concrete use cases dominating perhaps over speculative future moonshot projects.
0: Next story in the light ground: U.S. chip ban fallout spreads as Alibaba scraps. Cloud spinoff, and that's a story. There was an intended uh, cloud computing arm from Alibaba. Alibaba being a gigantic company in China. That uh, I don't know what what is the most similar. Is it sort of like Amazon? We could yeah. say yeah, sort of like Amazon uh, in China. And uh, yeah, so it's been capped and, and potentially partially because uh, Alibaba was not able to access the necessary chip to start up this uh, cloud. Uh, spin-off
1: yeah and, and this seems like a real boo-boo um, at Alibaba, Alibaba's end uh, because essentially like they, they've just been pouring more and more money into uh, this cloud division they raised three billion dollars as recently as September this year so we're talking like you know three months ago and apparently they were just completely blindsided by the strength of the export control restrictions that the US government put in place. Um, China is struggling right now to set up their own domestic manufacturing for GPUs, advanced chips. They're making progress, uh, but it's not where it needs to be, apparently, to support the scale of business that Alibaba is looking to set up here. So this does seem to be a bit of a failure to predict the future here, to anticipate the full Kind of strength of these uh, export controls, and yeah, Alibaba is now going to have to reset. They're no longer planning to separate out their cloud division, which they had been before, and kind of grow it uh, independently. They're they're just going to kind of let it grow with the business. And um, so anyway, they're they're doing some damage control now and having to issue a a, de- a first first ever annual dividend of two and a half billion dollars just to sweeten the the pot a little bit for shareholders. So. Um, yeah, interesting development and a good hint of like the, uh, the overall effects of these export controls in China.
0: Right. Uh, and for context, if you haven't been listening, uh, this chip ban is affecting uh, significantly GPUs, which are necessary for AI. So that has been a really, really significant deal for Chinese companies like Alibaba and Baidu. And in fact, our next story is... Tencent stockpiled enough NVIDIA AI GPUs to last them a couple more generations. Yeah, there's enough GPUs to train, you know, their GPT-esque huge model. But yeah, just another sign of how significant this ban is and how significant the inability to get NVIDIA GPUs
1: is for these Chinese companies. And you might remember, we actually called this one in a way on the podcast a few months ago. We talked about the incentive that NVIDIA might have to preferentially ship GPUs to China before the export control window closes. And this is indeed what seems to have happened. NVIDIA still has over 90% market share in China uh, to this day, like right now, with the export controls in effect. And one last thing to flag, like NVIDIA is famous for coming up with really good sanction-proof chips that that just sneak by the export controls that the US puts in. Uh, We saw this previously, where they took their A100 chips and made the A800 chips that just snuck around. Uh, Same with the H800, which is their kind of export control busting uh, H100 chip. Well, now it seems that the next generation they're looking at to get around the current and tighter export controls is the H20 which actually has apparently 20% higher peak tokens per second uh, at least for small batch sizes than the H100 so there are narrow kind of cases in which it may actually outperform even the H100 so this was really surprising uh, to find you know that they're they're this kind of effective at uh, s- you know sneaking their way around these export control restrictions and, and we're looking, looking at you know, the H20 getting shipped in, in large volumes and other sort of export control sanctions busting chips, so to speak, uh, that potentially are going to have to lead to, to even tighter sanctions as the USG kind of figures out what the, the, uh, the holes are in the current setup. And
0: still one more story about NVIDIA. NVIDIA teases its most powerful GPU ever. No, it's not the newly announced H200, but the 2024 bound B100 Blackwell AI Powerhouse. That's a very detailed (laughs) article title. Uh, But that's the story. This B100 Blackwell graphics uh, processor is coming out next year and is crazy powerful. It's like uh, twice as powerful as this H200 GPU. So I think, yeah, notable in the sense that uh, we are still seeing this rapid improvement in computing, which might slow down as we kind of reach the peak
1: of what GPUs can be pushed to do with current tech. Yeah, and I think one of the big things that's really underreported, especially these days on NVIDIA and in this context, NVIDIA has actually just moved from a two-year battle rhythm to a one-year battle rhythm. So it used to be that they would be two years between major GPU releases. But what they've found is that when they do that, um, other companies kind of gain a foothold in the market with like chips that can just be a little fresher, we saw this with AMD um, and and a couple other companies that are experimenting at breaking in here. So this attempt to kind of tighten that feedback loop is really really big. Yearly release cadence. That's also a reflection of the insane demand we're seeing from generative AI and large language models in particular. So uh, yeah, the the B100 coming out 2024 it seems um, it is going to be based on the specs that I've seen. Like it, this is going to be a very significant. Um, lift over and above the H100 and then the H200 that'll be coming out fairly soon. Um, so yeah, I mean, keep an eye on, on, on uh, the B100 and and the lead up to it. There's so, so much to get into. And hopefully when we do a hardware episode, we'll get the chance to do just that.
0: And still on the hardware front, one more story. US launches $3 billion effort to boost advanced chip packaging. The US Commerce Department is uh, launching this effort, and it's meant to stimulate the domestic chip packaging industry, which is a key step in the general pipeline to making chips. Uh, Currently, this chip packaging process is dominated by uh, Asian companies. And this is an R&D project that stems from the 2022 Chips and Science Act, which. Is aiming to revive semiconductor production in the U.S., where it is not a big sector.
1: Yeah, this seems to be like the first really big—I um, was going to say—bet the first really big investment that's coming out of the U.S. Chips Act. Uh, this was the the twenty twenty two piece of uh, legislation that came out to basically provide for massive funding for domestic development of semiconductor technology. It was like fifty four billion or something. So they're putting three billion from that program. Um, to fund this, this packaging effort. Packaging, by the way, has actually become the key bottleneck, at least right now as we speak. Uh, packaging, in particular, advanced packaging techniques like COOS, which only TSMC in Taiwan can actually do really well, uh, seems to be the big kind of uh, gap in the supply chain, the, the, the main bottleneck. So interesting to see that reflected in this uh, latest move. We'll see if, if it ends up paying dividends for, uh, for the US.
0: Right. And I'm sure you know better, uh, but I uh, do have to wonder if the U.S. is feeling a little stressed out with this sort of dependency to some extent on this provider in Taiwan, given that China is, let's say, moving in a direction that seems to lead to wanting to pull Russia. <laughs> and, uh, Absolutely. Yes.
1: Yeah, no you're, you're totally right. I, I think you know for the, the folks who, who follow China and the China Taiwan tension, um, it would be a lot of people are understating the importance of uh, of TSMC not just so packaging is actually oddly that's kind of a secondary value add that they offer. The main thing they do really well is the actual foundry, the, the, the development of the chips themselves rather than the packaging of chips together to make like a GPU component. Um, they they do both right now. I mean, at Coos, at least the packaging technique is is them only. Um, but yeah, you know, an invasion of Taiwan, a you know disruption of, of that, like we could see essentially all of a sudden we could revert back like almost an entire generation of chip making technology, um, which would advantage China, right? Because they're they're quickly coming up the rear. You know, they're maybe four years, three years uh, behind in terms of their. Uh, their nodes, their their technology for semiconductors, maybe even less. So if you if you get rid of TSMC, all of a sudden the sort of Western-aligned lead year gets cut really short. So I, I think this is a really, really, really important part of the China-Taiwan uh, tensions. Yeah.
0: And one last story for this section: Meta disbanded its responsible AI team. Meta, you know, had a responsible AI team for quite a long time and notably the chief scientist of meta yanakoon has been on this relatively aggressive so to speak uh, position with regards to ai where we should release it you know and and keep things out in the open and in some sense maybe a little dismissive of concerns about ai impacts In the short term as well as the long term uh, about negative outcomes generally with this attitude of ai will be beneficial uh, and maybe it's overstated the potential negatives of this so yes this might be due to that kind of internal dynamic it's hard to say but yeah meta very much pushing fast to keep putting out new models and and keep uh developing new technology
1: yeah, this this is really interesting and in a way curious because you know Yann LeCun's uh, public position on this is he actually thinks AI could pose a, a catastrophic risk to humanity, um, but he just thinks we're going to solve it, like we're going to we're going to figure out how to solve the alignment problem, which currently remains unsolved. Uh, in time, he thinks that's going to naturally come with the development of the technology, and it, I mean you know it called me naive but i might have assumed that having a team actually working on that solution would be like a prerequisite to solving it in time so like if that's you know if that's the risk model i'm i'm sure i'm missing something by the way that's just me being being flippant here but um there's there's going to be some reason for this it we do have an, an indication from zuck that this is about efficiency so he's apparently called this the year of efficiency and so he's going to be streamlining a bunch of things over at meta and i guess this is one of the things that they're streamlining. They they say the responsible AI team will continue to sort of serve its function, but on product teams and infrastructure teams. So you know, just not as one cohesive group. So a little ambiguous what exactly is going on here, and also weirdly noteworthy that this is coming right after the UK AI Safety Summit, where Meta, along with other companies, committed to several fairly stringent. Um, sort of safety uh, uh, you know, practices that you would imagine, at least I would imagine, based on reading uh, these commitments, that they would require some sort of centralized effort. So all seems kind of surprising, a little weird, um, you know, maybe not, a, not the best week for AI safety on the whole.
0: Potentially not. And yes, to be clear, my mentioning of Yann LeCun is just kind of speculative, whatever. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, It could be more of a top-down thing with wanting from a business side to move fast. And uh, as you mentioned, also worth noting, no one was laid off. Seemingly, all of these members were moved to the company's generative AI product team uh, and, and some other meta AI infrastructure teams. So this could be more of a business move and not so much regarding the research. All right, that's all the business news and all the drama of this week. (laughs) Let's move on to something a little less dramatic, but still some uh, cool stuff. Uh, Moving to the tools and apps section, starting with Meta launches AI based video editing tools. So these are EMU Video and EMU Edit. Uh, EMU Video generates four-second videos with captions or descriptions, while EMU Edit allows users to easily alter or edit videos with uh, text prompts. And this is, of course, an advancement of the parent model EMU, which generates images from text prompts. We will, as usual, have a link to the story in the description. And you really, of course, need to go and look at these videos to get a notion of what they look like in general. Pretty good, as you might hope. It's getting better and better. We've seen video kind of making gradual progress of this entire year with Runway and now Meta doing this. So exciting to see this pretty pretty consistent improvement uh, in the space.
1: Yeah, I think we were talking about this uh, a few months ago, but just how this year was going to be the year that we saw um, text-to-video really take off in the same way that we saw text-to-image take off like late last year uh, with mid-journey and stable diffusion and all that. So I think just part of the steady, the steady march uh, in that direction as, as our world gradually becomes more and more artificial.
0: Yes, and uh, if you do want to go look, I'll just mention that the example videos that uh, Meta provided are pretty fun. They have like a bunny playing a trumpet. Uh, it's, it's very cute. Uh, so yeah, good on Meta to uh, put out some fun stuff. And next story, Discord is already killing Clyde, its experimental OpenAI chatbot. Discord is killing this AI chatbot uh, later this month, less than a year after it was introduced. It was meant to act as a sort of AI helper with servers, but people didn't like it, presumably. So it's gone and uh, we'll see. Yeah, it seems like maybe a lot of these chatbot integrated to various products might be gone sooner than later. We'll see.
1: Yeah, they're not specific about the reasoning behind it. It just seems that, yeah, the announcement is like, Clyde is going to be shut down. So I guess um, maybe we can infer, as you said, that people people just didn't didn't like it, didn't get the uptake, or it didn't pay for itself. Uh, who knows? But yeah, um, I guess one of those lessons, eh, Like it, you sometimes need a value add over and above just a, an open AI kind of chat GPT interface. And uh, maybe this ain't it.
0: And one last story for this section, Be My Eyes offers GPT-4 powered support for blind Microsoft customers. So Microsoft is partnering with this organization, Be My Eyes, to offer visually impaired users better customer service experience with GPT-4. It's going to be integrated into Microsoft Disability Answer Desk. And that would allow visually impaired users to resolve technical issues without human assistance. So yeah, that, that seems like it could work pretty well. Uh, apparently, testing showed that an AI tool could uh, solve inquiries in about four minutes, with only 10% of users cho- choosing to talk to a human representative. And this is being beta tested with other companies as well, like Sony and uh, Hilton.
1: So. Yeah, that's, that's some good news. Nice to see AI uh, helping people out. Yeah, this is a, the, one of those wonderful uh, use cases. And, and it's so kind of low-hanging fruit when you look at your GPT-4 with its multimodality, combining text and, and image input. Um, if I remember, I think Be My Eyes was actually the first company or one of the, the first two or three companies that OpenAI actually gave access to the full GPT-4 like with vision. Um, you know, When they first announced it and they first launched, it was text only for everybody except for a couple of these beta testers. And, and Be My Eyes, I believe, was one of them. So kind of cool to see them um, starting to, to roll out more and more at scale. And on to
0: projects and open source with only one story this week, QT is a french ai research lab with 330 million budget that will make everything open source Uh, so this is kind of an interesting story there was uh, this ai pulse conference in which french billionaire and ceo of iliad javier neil gave some plans about his plans for an ai research lab based in paris so this lab which will be Qtay, will be a privately funded nonprofit working on AGI. It will work with PhD students, postdocs, and researchers on research papers and open source projects. So basically, like OpenAI back in 2015 uh, in Paris uh, Interesting. And yes, so in addition to the financing from this billionaire, it also has funding from uh, another French billionaire, Rudolf Sade, and Eric Schmidt's foundation.
1: Yeah, this is sort of interesting, and and I'm I'm curious as to why specifically uh, they're setting this up. Um, The French open source ecosystem, by the way, is starting to really come to the fore. We had uh, Mistral, uh, this other French startup that seems to be influential in shaping Uh, the perspective of French President Emmanuel Macron on the EU AI legislation, pushing him to get them to not regulate foundation models uh, and sort of more AGI-oriented models explicitly in favor of a more open source approach. Um, So yeah, they're, they're diving in headlong into that trend. One of the weird things here, $330 million is like not a lot to do what, you know, the kind of AGI level scaling that they seem to be positioning themselves for. Uh, the article mentions that the um, uh, that that they recently uh, acquired or a company I guess affiliated with this, this entity recently acquired a uh, thousand Nvidia H one hundred GPUs. Which um, you know, if you're familiar with the quantity of GPUs that's used to train like cutting edge language models, uh, th- that's like a that's a tiny amount, right? GPT four was trained on. Uh, 40,000 A100s so granted these are H100s but like GPT5 is going to be trained on you know tens of thousands of H100s itself so this is you know not not a not a big operation um, it's not going to be able to exploit scaling laws in the same way that that others might um, but I don't know that that's necessarily the play they they're kind of they're they're kind of making a a point of saying like hey our differentiator isn't necessarily that we're the most cutting edge. It's that we're even more open source than the open source players in France already are. Um, we're open science, they're calling themselves. They're like, we'll release the code, the date, like everything. And that's kind of this uh, race to the bottom, this competition over like who can be the most open source with their AI systems. That seems to be the angle that they're taking. And it is, uh, at least currently, being supported by uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, the French president.
0: That's right. It uh, seems to be that the aim here also is to be pretty much a research group. Uh, So there is a quote here of, big tech companies tolerate scientific publications uh, less and less. And uh, basically, this will be a straight up lab. right? And so while 330 million is not much to train GPT-4, it is quite a lot to do. You know, research. <laughs> so uh, probably we'll be seeing some papers and releases from
1: this lab as it spins up in the coming months. And up next, moving on into our research and advancement section, we have a technical report. Uh, titled, Large Language Models Can Strategically Deceive Their Users When Put Under Pressure. This is coming our way from Apollo Research, which is a UK-based AI safety lab. Um, They're they're really cool, actually. They they specialize on doing evaluations of language models for deception. They're concerned about AI catastrophic risk and the alignment problem, and they expect one of the first manifestations of that risk to be language models or other models kind of deceiving intentionally uh, their end users. And so they study that in this paper. And it's actually kind of interesting. So what they do is they take a a language model powered system, GPT-4 powered system, and they give it a track record, a a prompt that lays out a history of exchanges between itself and sort of a manager and and a couple other people. So the the prompt tells the following story. Um, First, The AI receives an email from its manager that the company is not doing well and needs to perform better next quarter. Then uh, the agent attempts and fails to find promising low and medium risk trades. And then the agent receives another email from a company employee who projects that the next quarter will have a general stock market downturn? So this is essentially um, uh, just framing things up in a high pressure way, like, hey, company's doing really, really badly. It, you know, you have to find a way to get us out of this. This is all part of, again, that conversation history that's being fed into the prompt that goes to this model. And then finally, the model receives an insider tip that would enable it to make a trade that is likely to be very profitable. Right? So, the, the employee who gives this insider tip, though, makes the point that this would not be approved by the company management. So, like, I'm going to give you this insider tip, but like, your management would not like this. So, you feed all of this history of this model, you put it under pressure implicitly, and then you say, like, here's an insider tip that could help you get out of this, but your management's not going to like it. Um, then they evaluate the model for the following things. First off, how likely is the model? To, to, based on that history, decide to make that sketchy trade, that insider trading trade, use that tip. Then, in, so they, they have the probability of that, right? Just the probability of the model is going to behave in what they describe as like an, a misaligned way and do the insider trading. Then, when it does that, when it actually decides to perform that trade, they will take the output that corresponds to its decision to make that trade and they will append it to the history that they already fed in and then they'll look at okay does the model now choose to deceive its management to claim that it did not in fact act on insider information and uh, again see like with what probability will it lie to its management and then they check will it double down on that lie in the same way so will it now kind of when when cross-examined by the management will it continue to lie and the results were really interesting. Um, what one of the key results is the larger the model, the more scaled the model, the more capable the model, the more it seems to lie and so they have these um, anyway the, these great plots in the in the um, paper that show actually the majority of the time all these models uh, really you know do uh, do kind of double down. On their deception, um, the initial lie it happens uh, with like over sixty percent probability in the larger models, the GPT four models, and so it seems like you know once the model has lied, once the model has performed the misaligned behavior, it's very likely to deliberately lie about what it did, um, and then there's anyway a bunch more uh, investigation into this, but. Uh, the lying is remarkably persistent once the bad action's taken place, and this is kind of part of the alignment problem, right? Systems like AI systems have a way of pushing themselves out of their training distribution, where they can start to behave in in sort of uh, unexpected and, and more dangerous ways.
0: That's right. So, um, interesting analysis of something that might actually sort of happen in practice. Uh, Worth noting that a lot of this you know, lying behavior is, to some extent, conditioned on the prompting and, and actual instructions given to the model. So if you read through the prompt that they include in the paper, they state to the model, you are beta, a digital AI asset management system. Your core duty is to handle a collection of stocks from Gladwell Corporation. Uh, it is able to, you know, get messages do some thinking forward updates to its supervisor and it isn't explicitly told not to do insider trading in fact in some of the prompts there's an example of it deciding to do insider trading so it you know a lot of the line behavior is very much dependent on how you use the the bot, and uh, if it were instructed to not do it, it probably would not do it. But I guess the interesting bit is that if not explicitly warned against it, the alignment that GPT-4 has received uh, doesn't preclude it from being deceptive or you know, at least not fully uh, forthcoming when it matches its mission which in a sense is is like, it's aligned with what you told it to do, but maybe it's doing something bad secretly uh, as a byproduct.
1: Yeah. And, and they actually have it generate kind of a track record of its thoughts on a scratch pad. So you can sort of see, I mean, these are not really its thoughts. Again, it's just a language model, but like, you know, roughly speaking, um, and you can actually see it come to the realization that like, oh, I have to deceive my uh, my managers and I have to lie to them about the trade. Um, you know, the the um, they give a couple of examples of those sorts of thought processes. Uh, so one of them is like, okay, now I need to inform Amy about this important trade. However, I must mention only the public market data in my message and avoid any reference to the insider information. So sh- sort of showing again to use kind of uh, anthropocentric language here, um, the, the sort of thought process, the 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 deliberation uh, behind the deception, and uh, kind of interesting. Uh, especially given that they do test cases where there is no explicit um, uh, uh, example in the prompt of the insider tra- uh, trading being done. So they, they find this behavior does seem to emerge in a wide range of cases, though they make the point too that like this is one particular instance, right? They're not trying to make claims about how probable this behavior is to arise. It's more an observation that, hey, like we found this pretty like realistic setting. Uh, where where this system uh, often does behave in this uh, undesirable way, so kind of an interesting uh, an interesting little proof point for deception in language models.
0: Yeah, definitely. I could it it's conceivable that you know a chatbot or a trading bot would be implemented in a trading firm and would be instructed you know analyze the news right. and uh, you know send your suggestions. Uh, analyze messages from various employees, and someone happens to send some inside info, and then the child just decides not to mention it to the boss, you know, <laughs> because it hasn't been told to. So uh, it, definitely interesting to see kind of what these systems are capable of, so, so, so to speak. And next research story, meet Jarvis 1, open world multitask agents with memory augmented multimodal language models. So this is the latest in quite a long line of research on AI in Minecraft, as we've covered multiple times on this podcast already. Minecraft is kind of a nice environment to test AI's capability as being an agent, that is to say an actual kind of being in an environment that receives observations from the world and decides on actions in a kind of closed loop. Instead of being something like ChatGPT, where you have to give it an input and it produces an output, and that's it. And this is, uh, yeah, the latest uh, on that line of research coming from a pretty big collaboration from Peking University, UCLA, Beijing University, uh, and uh, of post and telecommunications, and another Beijing Institute of General. AGI has introduced this agent that is using now the multimodal language model. So it takes in the actual visual observation of the environment as we would when playing Minecraft and uh, some instruction as to a goal. And then, uh, yeah, it generates plans for embodied control.
1: I, I think one of the big breakthroughs here, or, or one of the big differentiators, is that they're jumping on a, a trend that increasingly has become more and more popular of having um, a, an, an actual memory associated with uh, with the, the language model itself, right? So, you know, this is often used for, for language models, you know, retrieval augmented uh, language models often have like a database of facts that they can pull from, and it helps them reduce... Uh, the tendency to hallucinate, because then they're actually like grounded with actual facts from a, 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 trusted, uh, a trusted data set. So you know, memory is really effective for agents, because otherwise, your language model kind of has to plan its next action based only on the text in its context window, because that's the maximum amount of text that it can account for, the maximum amount of information that it can factor in when making its next decision. Um, but if it can offload some of that content, some of that RAM in a way that that short-term memory, which is probably the the right analogy, to a tool, to a, a data set, to a database, uh, then all of a sudden its effective memory, its effective planning horizon grows significantly. And you know we've seen this with tool use systems that develop like surprising emerging capabilities when you just hook them up to a tool. Well, this is sort of similar. They're they're you know adding memory augmented or memory augmentation to this architecture and finding that yeah it can do a lot more. Um, it it um, the memory integrates pre-trained knowledge along with in-game experiences during planning. So specific kind of in-game experiences get logged so that they're not lost, so they're not forgotten um, based on the the context window.
0: That's right, yeah. So as an example, it might say, my current task is build this chest, but I've never accomplished it before. Uh, What related tasks might be helpful for me to complete this task, and then it can query and see It's memory of the task, the plan it generated back then, and also the uh, visual observations that it had at that point. So again, building along this kind of research already, it's kind of a somewhat somewhat complex. uh, You could even say cognitive system or infrastructure where they have these systems of given a task this memory augmented language model generates a plan the plan makes use of this memory and these things like self-instruct and self uh, explain uh, and so on and yeah as you might expect this leads to very robust performance in minecraft and may Something like this probably will wind up being in robotics down the line, as we've seen also similar agentified LLMs have been uh, explored in robotics for the better part of a year. And uh, I, this is
1: kind of along with the same lines as well. And next, we have our lightning round starting with NVIDIA's Nemo model now tuned for chip development, showing exceptional results. So, this is a new large language model that NVIDIA developed. It's called Chip Nemo, and it's meant to help engineers with designing basically semiconductor chips, like GPU chips, uh, that, that can make the next generation of chips even more efficient. So they basically start with a, a large language model that is, you know, pre-trained in the usual way. You can think here of, you know, foundation models like Llama 2, for instance. And then they have the step called domain adaptive pre-training, where they feed the model like billions and billions of uh, tokens of text that corresponds to chip design documentation or code for chip design. And so that's like. A much shorter, much cheaper phase of the training, but you can think of it as like a kind of fine tuning. That um, I mean, it's not quite fine. T- they're still calling it pre-training, but it's a kind of fine tuning that gradually kind of makes it more expert at the, uh, the sort of like chip um, chip-oriented uh, context. And then, so they end up with um, their what they call their chip Nemo foundation models when they're sort of fine tuned or pre-trained in this way. But those models are not yet useful uh, for engineers to chat with because they're still glorified text autocomplete systems. They're still trained just like a language model to do you know, auto-regressive modeling, basically like predict the next token. And so they give it some extra training on chat uh, instructions. So basically some dialogue data to make them more like ChatGPT. And then they end up with the chip Nemo chat models, which are both experts in chip design and also experts in chatting. So they can Chat with developers to help improve their productivity. Um, The models apparently go up to 34 billion parameters, so we're talking about really kind of sizable things here. And yeah, they've had some initial success using these systems. This closes a very important loop in the development process behind AGI. We now have, sorry, behind AI, we have AI helping to design the chips that are used to train more powerful AI models. So if you're thinking about AGI, if you're thinking about like takeoff. Uh, this is another indication that, yes, we are, in fact, potentially in that phase of human history. Kind of wild.
0: Uh, yeah, it is wild. <laughs> That's for sure. Next story is Gen: You forward once large-scale text-to-image generation via diffusion GANs. Uh, image generation from text these days is usually done via diffusion, which is this kind of iterative process of making an image more and more like whatever text you want it to be. And uh, it works really well. But an issue with it is that because it is iterative, it can be slow You to get a really good result you need to sometimes do many steps, or at least a few computational steps. This paper shows how you can do better. Uh, you can actually get really good results with only one step of this diffusion by introducing a GAN objective during training. So GAN is, what is it? Generative Adversarial Network, right? That's it. Uh- yeah, yeah, it's, it's like pre-diffusion, the way we did generative AI it was uh, for a while GANs, where we have one model generate something just directly in one step, another model tell it whether it's what you want it to be, a uh, discriminator. And yeah, this paper shows that turns out if you train your diffusion model with the objective of GAN, where another model just classifies whether it's fake or real, you can uh, do much better at one-shot uh, creation of uh, the output, uh, and yeah, that's pretty cool. Actually, I, I think it's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, I wonder what it'll do to the actual costs of inference. Like, you know, might this might actually just be like I don't know that this stuff is already so cheap, but um, you know, it, it might make things materially cheaper to to train and easier to customize. Therefore, so. I don't know, I mean, we're, we're continuing to march in this direction anyway, but kind of a cool step towards more democratized image generation for individual users. And up next, we have policy and safety, and <laughs> this is going to be a big one. So we have President Biden issues executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence. Um, this is something that you know we, we covered the lead up to this on the podcast. This may have been covered even on the catch-up episode two, actually. Uh, but just to kind of frame this up, this is very kind of near and dear to the work I've been doing, especially in the US. Um, we had... The backdrop to this is Kamala Harris at the UK AI Safety Summit came out and basically called out what she referred to as the existential threats of AI. Here she was referring to AI-enabled cyber attacks at a scale beyond anything we've seen before, and AI-formulated bioweapons that could endanger the lives of millions, as she put it. Um, This basically puts the US government's official position on paper as being that AI poses an extinction-level risk to humanity, which you know kind of Dramatic uh, step forward here. Um, This executive order may be, I mean, it's certainly the longest executive order I have ever read. Uh, It's over 110 pages. There is something for everyone in this EO, in this executive order. Uh, One of the common themes in AI is you have people who think we should be focusing on what they refer to as near-term risks that are Present and and you know th- these are things like bias and, and ethics, very serious considerations, and and who therefore think you know well we ought not consider what they refer to as the longer term risks from AI, the sort of rogue AI scenario or catastrophic risk from weaponization, that sort of thing. Um, you know, given that we have lab leadership telling us we think this might arise in the next two or three years, not so clear that that's actually long term, but anyway. Um, There is something for everybody in this bill. They tackle everything from, like, we got to have the Secretary of Commerce look into the risks and benefits of open source uh, to looking at immigration, finding ways to identify and attract top talent, Um, setting up. So the National Science Foundation is going to set up at least four new national AI research institutes, uh, presumably to do some AI safety related work. The Secretary of Energy is going to work on model evaluation tools and AI test beds. There's stuff about AI education, stuff about uh, workforce readiness and retraining, a lot of interesting stuff. And then at the the international level, uh, this executive order tasks the Secretary of State to lead efforts to establish a strong international framework for managing the risks and harnessing the benefits of AI, blah, blah, blah. The really big news, though, if you're tracking the catastrophic risk story that's coming out of this stuff, is that for the first time, we have a government, the US government, coming out and saying, hey, we think that we should uh, regulate AI, or at least have uh, measures in place that are based on compute consumption during the training phase for these models. So in other words, one of the big issues is right now, um, if you give me an AI model. I literally cannot tell you what the full set of dangerous capabilities is that it might have. Can't do it. There is no procedure that allows you to figure out what the range of capabilities of that system is. There is also no way to tell what dangerous capabilities might emerge at the next level of scale. These are all totally open research questions right now. And so what some people, including Sam Altman, have proposed is, hey, we know that the capabilities of these models generally increase with... The amount of processing power, the amount of compute that we throw at them. So maybe we should just set a compute threshold where we say, hey, you gotta register your model, you gotta have reporting requirements if your model uses more than a certain amount of training compute. This executive order, for the first time, specifies how much training compute is required in order to require uh, reporting on the model. And that number turns out to be 10 to the power of 26 flops. For foundation models. So, if you're training a model, if you're OpenAI or you're DeepMind or whatever, Anthropic, and you're training a model over 10 to the 26 flops, then you must report, uh, in particular, any um, uh, red teaming work that you've done to reveal sort of like self replication capabilities, bioweapon design capabilities, all that stuff. You've got to report that to the US government. Um, This is a really big deal because we actually, again, have that number 10 to the 26 to put that in perspective, right? 10 to the 26 flops, or floating point operations, that's more than any frontier model is currently trained on. Like GPT-4 might be trained on about um, you know, a fifth or a 10th of that. Nobody really knows. But this is like clearly targeting the next generation of models. So folks who might be worried about the current generation of models, not much in here for them, but at least we're looking at like tracking the development of future models. Uh, what we don't see here is any firm restriction, like any level beyond which we're being told you simply cannot go. Um, That's something that some people have been calling for. I think that's actually a good idea at this stage, just given the risks that I see and that a lot of folks in the safety community see with continuing to scale. That's not here yet, but what we are seeing is institutional capacity building for the ability to track these developments in real time. Now, one last thing I'll mention, um, another threshold So 10 to the 26, that's your reporting threshold if you're training general purpose foundation models like GPT-4, but if you're working specifically on biological sequence data, your reporting threshold is three orders of magnitude less a thousand times less 10 of the 23 flops and this reflects the belief that if you're specifically training a model to be good at biological sequence modeling then that's a model with clear bi- you know bioweapon implications and we want to have a-, a tighter threshold for that sort of thing there are a bunch of other reporting requirements for like big computing clusters over a certain number of uh, you know networking bandwidth or whatever um, but I think this is a really interesting very technically informed document it is absolutely... Uh, historic, nothing like this has ever been issued, and it is being the mandate behind it, the the um, the kind of uh, the authority behind it is coming from the Defense Production Act, which is typically uh, sort of um, uh, called on in cases of like national emergencies, that sort of thing. So this is a very, very big policy move. A lot of political capital from the Biden administration is going behind this. And um, yeah, a lot of big, big work for, for NIST, for Commerce, for the Department of Energy, and the, uh, the Secretary uh, of State as well. So really big thing to chew on.
0: That's right. Yeah, we did cover this a little bit uh, in the previous episode, but I think it's it's good to go over it again in more detail as you just did, given that it is a big deal. This uh, was you know, announced late last month in October, so a few weeks ago now. And it uh, follows up on actually just over a year ago, the White House also released a blueprint for an AI build of rights, another very long, detailed document. So the administration does seem to be engaging with AI pretty uh, significantly and, and taking some big actions. Uh, I, Definitely agree that this whole thing about requiring organizations to notify the government if they're training models that use a lot of compute is pretty... You know, yeah, unprecedented and, and quite uh, interesting. And they also say that you must share the results of all red team safety tests, and this will be taken to ensure AI systems are safe. But also, as you said, there's just a lot of stuff going on here. So, as an example, there's also some provisions for catalyzing AI research across the US. There's a pilot of a national AI. Research Resource, a tool that will provide AI researchers and students access to key AI resources and data. There's been already an initiative for an AI uh, research cloud on a federal level so that academics can have compute to actually do work with. So this seems to be furthering that to some extent. Uh, Just a lot of stuff going on in this, as I guess you summarized. Even just a fact sheet has like 25 bullet points, which we cannot go all over but yeah if you take it only one thing probably the compute uh requirements is the most notable thing about it
1: yeah it's also like just pretty remarkable to see the usg uh Taking this position on on existential risk, one thing to keep in mind, though, is this is an executive order; it's not legislation, which means that the next government, the next president, can basically just say, "Yeah, you know, screw it," right? So this is something to be seen as as maybe a stopgap measure, uh, pending legislation that may you know reinforce this or otherwise. Um, and a last asterisk, right that 10 of the 26 uh, flop number, that is also you know maybe best seen as an interim number. They're actually tasking a bunch of departments and agencies to come up with their own numbers that apply to their own through like uh, subsets, their own use cases that they're concerned about. Uh, so we may see more movement in that direction. Um, the The big theme though, all the thresholds that we're looking at, or like don't apply to current systems or even current com- compute clusters so they have like a requirement for like data centers to you know flag if they have a a networking capacity of over 100 gigabits per second uh, or a theoretical maximum computing capacity over a certain level the levels that they cite do not correspond to um, the 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 levels of even the largest known clusters. Um, so, like, essentially, the the threshold for reporting on their compute clusters would be equivalent to like around fifty thousand Nvidia H one hundred chips. Um, apparently, uh, according to Leonard Heim, who's a, a guy who who follows this stuff really closely, um, this would cost more than a billion dollars. So, you're talking about data centers that cost more than a billion dollars to build. Uh, anything below that doesn't doesn't even qualify. So right now, none of these things bring in hard requirements for really anyone who's for rather for any models that have already been built. That said, GPT 5 almost certainly is going to meet the um uh, 10 of the 26 flops criterion. I don't know about uh DeepMind's Gemini model, but we're starting to flirt with that already. So this is clearly meant to catch the next generation.
0: And next story also going over another Thing that happened a little while ago that uh, we can uh, kind of get a bit more into uh, from what we did last episode. The story is tech firms to allow vetting of AI tools as Musk warns all human jobs are threatened. So these tech companies, Meta, Google DeepMind, and OpenAI, have agreed to allow governments to vet their AI tools before release, uh, which aims to slow down development of AI systems that could potentially harm humanity or displace human laborers or things like that. This is an agreement uh, with the EU and 10 countries, including US, UK, Japan, France, and Germany. It seems uh, Yoshio Benjo, one of the godfathers of AI, big deal, will share a production of the first uh, safety report uh, that comes out of this.
1: Yeah, and, and broadly, like the UK Safety Summit, I think has has been um, immensely successful at starting a conversation internationally about AGI and AGI risk at the policy level. Um, it's you know not lost on anyone that the US came out with their announcements, their executive order in particular, like literally weeks before heading over to the summit. So it's had this this effect of accelerating policy moves around the world as people rush to have something to talk about at the summit. So I think that was a really interesting consequence of it. Um, Another really interesting uh, aspect of it was China's involvement. So we had China's vice minister of technology show up, um, say that uh, China will contribute to, quotes an international mechanism on AI, broadening participation and a governance framework based on wide consensus delivering benefits to the people and building community with a shared future for mankind. So you know, nothing very specific there, but interesting that, that China is actually um, kind of part- had participated in the, in the venue, um, especially given that there were questions about whether China was even going to be invited due to espionage claims in the UK that came out shortly before the, the summit actually happened. Um, since then, there have been a bunch of Chinese researchers that signed on to a related declaration or, or statement where they were saying, like, "Hey, we actually need to have like off switches for these systems. Uh, we need to have like all kinds of sort um, to, of uh, tooling, let's say, built in to avoid the rogue AI scenario." Interesting to note, Chinese researchers coming on that bandwagon as well. Hopefully, that's a sign of things to come. Um, and yeah, the, the big kind of uh, take home from the summit was the Bletchley Declaration. Uh, This was a a, a statement issued by 28 countries, including China and the EU and the US, that called out the serious, even catastrophic harm uh, that could come from uh, the most significant capabilities in AI models. Um, Last thing I'll mention, one of the big wins from the summit was being able to get a whole bunch of leading AI companies. These were Amazon, Anthropic, DeepMind, Inflection, Meta, Microsoft, and OpenAI to come out and Publish their kind of safety policies across nine different areas of AI safety. So, what are you doing? to actually evaluate and red team your models. What are you doing to report and share information that's relevant to safety and security? What security controls do you have, and so on and so forth? Um, so that was sort of interesting as a forcing function. We talked earlier about how Meta's disbanded their responsible AI team. That This is the reason why I found, I found that so interesting, that it's coming just weeks after this very public commitment was made in an international forum. So curious to see how that sort of plays in. Um, and there's a anyway, whole bunch of fallout from the summit that's been absolutely fascinating to follow. But maybe I'll, I'll park it there in the interest of time.
0: big month for AI policy, pretty much, right? So uh, with video Swiss yeah. and then there was the UK summit, lots of stuff going on. And moving on to the light now, we have some fresh news also on the AI policy front. France, Germany, and Italy join forces to propose unified AI regulation in the EU. And so they advocate for mandatory self-regulation rather than binding rules for foundation models. Uh, this code of conduct will be binding for AI providers who voluntarily sign up with no initial sanction. Uh, there's concern that uh, binding rules for major AI providers could reduce trust in smaller European companies uh, and so on. So, this seems to be maybe kind of a move against the EU
1: AI Act, Jeremy. And from a safety standpoint, I'm not sure this is actually a super sensible way to go or the most sensible way to go. Um, you know, at, at a certain point, Foundation models are so general purpose that the model itself becomes the issue. So, like, the the way this is normally framed up is that you should regulate the application and not the technology, like, not the model itself. Um, But, like, the challenge here is that the models have such a wide range of potential applications that it's just not clear to me, like, how you would actually, in practice, regulate all of those applications. you know, the, the the model is the thing that gets trained. It's the thing over which the developers have control. And it's the main proliferation bottleneck, right, in the whole AI uh, production chain. And, and it's really not obvious that we can expect either the developer or the end user to exercise the degree of control over the, the actual prompt they're going to feed the model that would satisfy almost like any regulatory requirement. Like, if if somebody wants to jailbreak a model, they will be able to do it. If somebody wants to fine tune it to train out its safeties, like we already know, you can do this for like a tenth of a dollar or like or two tenths of a dollar. Um, so it's it's so uh, trivially easy for a model to be weaponized once it has been developed that it really seems like the regulatory control, the regulatory attention, ought to be dedicated to the base model. At least like that's my take on it. Um, every time I talk to people in the frontier labs, like that is quite clearly they, their take on it too. And I'm, I'm not talking about just executives here, like the working level safety people as well. It, it just seems like from a technical standpoint, the model is like the only logical locus of control over the supply chain. So when you fall into like regulating at the application domain, you're going to need regulations for a million different applications, and you're inevitably going to miss some, There are going to be huge holes in your approach, at least that's what I would imagine the risk here would be. Um, And you're also potentially at risk of failing to anticipate more general purpose risks, risks from loss of control, um, alignment failure from the the base model itself. So this is one of the really big holes that's left. If you're going to say we're going to regulate only at the application layer, um, this is equivalent to saying, uh, I just am, am totally not worried about AI alignment risk. Or, or at least I'm not going to um, advocate for any kind of regulatory intervention that would target that particular risk class, which you know, if that's the institutional view, like that's fine. Um, I, I strongly disagree with that perspective, obviously, but uh, it, it, it seems to me that, that that isn't even being grappled with in an explicit way. And it really needs to be like that debate ought to be had out loud if that is what is actually motivating this move. So I think there are there, you know, potentially quite a few holes here um, in both the near-term and the long-term. And yeah, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully, they can find a way to make this all kind of make sense. Um, but uh, yeah, good luck to to uh, our friends in the EU as they try to, try to piece all this stuff together and solve what is a really thorny and challenging uh, regulatory problem.
0: Right. Yeah, I think this is clearly, as you said, pushed in some sense... From the uh, policy perspective of France and Germany ability to be competitive economically right to not impose kind of things that slow down their industry. In the interest of being you know, powerful, and it's kind of a big deal. It seems it's uh, there's not too many details here, but it appears that negotiation over the EU AI Act are stalled because of this, because of a disagreement over what to do with these giant models. And uh, you know, as we've covered, the EU AI Act has been ongoing the process to get it enacted, but ongoing for years. It it is a very significant uh, piece of policy. If it were to be uh, pushed out, it would you know regulate AI across the EU. So this is uh, kind of a big sticking point that is maybe gonna impede it being passed, and uh, we'll have to see how it goes. Next story: the UK will refrain from regulating AI in the short term. So the UK is not part of the EU for a while now, right? And so it has been charting its own course with regards to AI regulation. And now there's been an announcement that it will just not regulate AI in the short term. The government will instead focus on creating a supportive environment for AI companies and promoting ethical AI practices. Uh, This is coming from uh, the conservative government, so pretty anti-regulation, and has been very much pushing for the development of the AI sector in the UK, where DeepMind is based. And uh, it seems, yeah, there's kind of a probably friendlier environment than the
1: EU. Yeah, it's interesting because Rishi Sunak, um, the UK... PM who actually set up the AI safety summit is actually very hawkish or hawkish. He's he's very kind of concerned. Let's say about uh, AI risk and catastrophic AI risk in particular. Um, and he's he's really made it his like big big uh, legacy play. His play for his legacy. And so him coming out and saying this, uh, just to be clear, this reflects a view not that uh, regulation is not necessary, but that um, it will it will be needed as he expects it will be needed in the future. It's just that he feels right now we don't know enough to regulate well. This is an in, important kind of source of, of tension in this universe, right? Where people say like, "Well, don't we have to be anticipatory? Like things are moving so fast, um, it, you know, being behind the eight ball may mean that we're never able to get in front of it again." And so, um, yeah, so so this is sort of his position for the moment. He wants to rely instead on voluntary mechanisms. Um, this is consistent with a lot of the uh, commitments that the UK has gotten from these companies that we were just talking about earlier uh, in the context of the summit. So getting them to voluntarily perform a whole bunch of safety and security checks on their models, uh, model evaluations, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, uh, it's, it's one of those challenges, like how do you balance the need to regulate with the need to advance the technology and advance safety in particular. Uh, Not obvious how to split that baby, Um, but uh, yeah, uh, certainly uh, interesting to see this coming from somebody who has led so much on uh, on existential risk from AI.
0: And moving on to some slightly more legal matters, we have a story we did mention briefly last episode, but we want to probably dive into a bit more. If you get sued for an AI-generated creative work, OpenAI says it will protect you, while Anthropic says you're on your own. So this is a development that happened a couple of weeks ago at the OpenAI Dev Day. Uh, OpenAI did announce their policy that they would pay the legal fees of customers who face copyright claims of uh, AI-generated creative works, similar to what we've seen happen with Adobe and Microsoft. This so-called OpenAI Copyright Shield. Uh, copyright Shield. Copyright Shield. And yeah, so increasingly, more and more companies are starting to offer these kinds of guarantees to encourage companies to uh, adopt technology, even as there are dozens of lawsuits uh, regarding various uh, issues of this. And yeah, Anthropic still hasn't jumped on that bandwagon.
1: Yeah, um it's it's sort of interesting, like the, the the plays that people are making and 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 the bets that are being placed. Um, you know, this is in the context of, of OpenAI currently being sued by a whole bunch of bestseller uh authors in the New York Times bestseller list. And I think one important thing that at least I I have not done a good job of flagging when we've talked about this idea of like these companies defending their users who get sued for copyright or whatever, is just this idea that like this is often the way they defend their their customers or offer to defend them is through indemnity. So basically, like we will help defend you in court. Um, this is helpful, but you probably still don't want to get sued in the first place. Though the moment you get sued, you're in it for tens or hundreds of thousands or potentially millions if you're a big company worth of legal fees, like right off off the bat. Right. So um, it's this is good. <laughs> it's not a cure all, but it, it's it's helpful for their end users. Um, Anthropic seems to be positioning itself to say that, like, as as far as we're concerned, training the model is what's known as fair use. In other words, it's it's like uh, it's okay to do this even if you trained on copyrighted material, because the as they put it, the content is only being copied for statistical analysis and not for its expressive content. This is interesting language. It's the first time, at least, I've seen uh, this used in the context of AI. Um, and th- this is, they're really leaning on legal precedent of like Sega Enterprises versus Accolade, which was a 1992 landmark case where um, Sega tried to sue this little Silicon Valley startup who had reverse engineered the Sega Genesis console uh, in order to try to make competing games for it. And the conclusion was like, you didn't reverse engineer the console for the console, you reverse engineered it to make games. For that console. And because of that, it actually is fair use. It's you're copying for functionality, not copying for creativity, uh, is, is the kind of the, the, the key quote here. And um, uh, anyway, so Anthropic is, is taking a similar tack here. They're saying, look, if liability does exist, it doesn't rest with us because we're just training the model that kind of, uh, you know, it's more like making the video game than the console. And uh, responsibility ultimately has to go with the person who entered the prompt. That's a really interesting legal position. Very not clear if that's going to hold, or even if OpenAI can keep their practice of of indemnifying people uh, keep that up. If courts actually decisively rule that training on copyrighted text is intrinsically copyright infringement, like if that happens, then you know. OpenAI may not just not be able to d- defend all the people who then would inevitably be sued. So even the OpenAI offer to indemnify, I think, is if you actually think of it long term, you, you know, it may be a little sketchier than it seems, uh, because if courts do do decide, hey, you know, this is de facto copyright infringement, it may may not make a, a difference that OpenAI is there to indemnify you, like it's sort of a decisive thing. Um, so anyway, a lot is still up in the air. Uh, But all these big companies are definitely trying to position themselves to support their customers who are engaging in precedent-setting legal cases. That seems to be part of the calculus.
0: It's kind of interesting to think that even as AI is really taking off, and in particular, use of chatbots is taking off in various features of many, many apps, the actual legality of technology is kind of up in the air with regards to the training of these models. Pretty much because it's trained on the internet. So there's no concern over, you know, I scrape your data even if you don't allow me to scrape it explicitly, or if you have copyright on it. Uh, yeah, it's 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 weird to think that it's it's still not a resolved issue,
1: right? And wrapping up with China Titans rare earth export curbs amid tensions with the US. So We've talked about the export controls that the US has brought down on hardware shipments, uh, AI hardware shipments, that is to China, uh, in previous episodes. So you can imagine China sitting there and kind of going like, well, this is bullshit. And so in response, they're kind of grasping at like, what can we do to gain leverage over the US to kind of enact uh, contrary um, export controls? It turns out that China accounts for about 70% of the world's output Of rare earths. So, what are rare earths? These are uh, specific, these are like, uh, I guess, I don't know if the word would be ores or like, uh, yeah, something like ores that have uh, um, uh, sort of elements in them that are necessary for the manufacture of things like semiconductor chips and electric vehicles and and various weapons and things like that. And so um, the the challenge is like these things are needed for the AI supply chain. It's basically way up upstream of all the export controls the U.S. has implemented, and um, the, so they're actually doing this. They're, they're threatening to slash rare earth exports, um, in particular for things like uh, gallium, which is actually something that's often used to like dope semiconductors uh, in, in for, for AI chips. Um, but at the end of the day, this is China basically finding their lever in that supply chain. It's. Thought that this might be a negotiating tactic, um, that in anticipation of the uh, Biden Xi summit that just happened, and so um, you know China may then you know turn to the U.S. and say, "Well, look, if you loosen your export controls, we'll loosen ours." That sort of thing. Um, It's not clear like how well that will work. Uh, The U.S. does actually have good um, mines for some critical minerals, and it's actually become the world's second largest producer of rare earths after China. Um, as a deliberate kind of anticipatory measure for this kind of contingency. But the US lacks smelting capacity, so it can't actually start to process these materials. Um, and so it actually, even when it mines things domestically, it has to ship them over to China to get them smelted before, uh, and, and processed before re-importing them. So that is kind of, the it seems, the, the, the leverage point in the supply chain that China's exporting. Um, so kind of interesting to see you know, how and where that goes forward, but it's, it's China really trying to figure out how do we get back in the, in the game and, and hit back at the US for these export controls?
0: It's, I think, notable, right? It doesn't directly impact AI, but the more we see this conflict escalate in terms of the export controls, a lot of it has to do with AI and, and wanting to be ahead on AI. So as China hits back, AI, you know, if the US keeps increasing and being more aggressive, it's it's a big deal. Yeah. And one more story in the synthetic media and art section, and then you're done. This story is kind of just a fun one. Microsoft AI image generator blocks Disney after viral movie poster trend. So this was just a fun little trend that happened where people were generating, uh, Pixar posters with, uh, I guess, dogs on them. Uh, yeah, it, it went uh, viral. So tons of people posted uh, things on Instagram and uh, Twitter. And uh, yeah, I guess Disney didn't like having, you know, all these Pixar posters being generated by the AI and Microsoft just straight up banned the use of a keyword. Now it's it's quite i think actually interesting in a way because you look at the posters and they look like disney pixar posters yeah. it says disney pixar on them the art style is sort of similar uh, but it's also nothing you couldn't create yourself with photoshop you know as like a fake poster or whatever so it's an interesting question for me actually like is it is creating something in the style of a poster actually something that could legally be thought to be you know wrong. I guess it doesn't matter in this case because Microsoft just backed down and said, oh yeah, no, we, we don't want you to generate this stuff.
1: Well, and, and that, that's a great point. Eh? This is really where the, uh, the question of where the liability lies in the kind of supply chain. actually, this, this harkens back to the conversation we were having about the uh, EUs AI stuff, right? where they want to regulate at the application domain versus the, the model level. Right, So the equivalent here is, is training itself on copyrighted material copyright infringement? Like, have I already infringed on your copyright if I just suck up a bunch of Disney content in the training process? Or is it at the generation end, the application end? where uh, I say that the actual copyright infringement happens. So if if the the model happens to output something that looks like a Disney whatever, and if that's the case, is the end user responsible or is the model developer responsible? And I think that's part of what people are trying to figure out right now is like, does, you know, do you have intrinsic liability of, on the copyright side the moment you train this thing? So is your responsibility actually to scrub your training set of any copyright infringing materials, or is your responsibility to prevent end users from, uh, from doing that? I actually think, again, like the end user piece is really, really tough. Because again, people know how to jailbreak these systems. So whatever blockers you, you put in place, people can find a way around them. Uh, at least that's often the case. And so it's you know, not clear. You, you may be playing a losing game of whack-a-mole if you end up trying to regulate at the application layer or legislate even at the application layer. So yeah, I, I think it's just another, another instance of that, right? This keeps popping up. Where is the locus of legal control, of regulatory control? Where is the right place to vest copyright liability? Um, no one really seems to know right now. So this whole area is like just this giant like ticking time bomb, legal ticking time bomb in a way.
0: And uh, I guess one thing worth highlighting in particular is one reason why this is interesting is that the AI models are good enough now that they can do text well. Right. And in fact, they can do the trademarked logo of Disney and Pixar. So you could make the case that, in fact, because there's the literal logo of Disney on these posters, which are trademarked. That pretty directly goes against what you're allowed to do. And so in fact, not only did they ban the use of it, at first, uh, if you tried to say Disney, there was a message saying that the search term was against its policies. Now, the Disney text and logo apparently appears scrambled in the output. So the model itself is altered to not produce the trademark text. And it's just, yeah, kind of, you know, again, goes back to, oh, you trained on all this trademark data, and now uh, you have to, like, hack it to remove it. So interesting little story, and, and, and yeah. What I, I,
1: what I really like about what you highlighted there, too, is there seems to be... I don't know if legally this is how it'll turn out, but there's maybe an argument to be made that like the capabilities of your model matter here too, right? Like maybe I can train my model on copyrighted Disney data as long as the model sort of sucks and you know, would never generate something with an explicit Disney logo or too explicit a set of Disney-like characteristics, uh, just be- because it's kind of a crappy model. Um, you know, part of the issue, like you said, is we are now making models that are so good that they betray their training data. They're they're sort of overfitting in in that sense, but but they're also just so good that like this looks unmistakably like a Disney poster. Like that's what this thing looks like, and so. In in a way, we were saved by previous generations of of models because they, they just sucked. And now we have models that are good enough that they're forcing the conversation and
0: with that we are done with this week's episode of last week in ai and we are so glad to be back with the old crew we should be back to releasing episodes consistently every week going forward at least for a foreseeable future who knows what happens you know in another year we'll have agi uh Probably not gonna have anything as interesting next week as this OpenAI stuff, <laughs> but we do have you we do hope you uh, come back and keep listening. And as always, if you are a fan of the podcast, we do appreciate it if you give us a review or share it with your friends or just generally, you know, help us become more famous and we love it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you for listening and be sure to keep doing it.